You heard my father speak of desert power, Paul said. There it is. The surface of this planet is ours. No storm, nor creature, nor condition can stop us. Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Frank Herbert's Dune. This is season seven, episode eight, The Prophet, covering book three, The Prophet, chapters one to six. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge of this book and this series. My name is Dan, and I've only read up to this part. Hi, my name is Talia. I've read all of the Dune books written by Frank Herbert. I've also seen the miniseries and the most recent 2021 film. My name is Priya, and I have only read up to this point in the book, and I have also watched the 2021 film. This is Amin, and I have read up to this point in the book, and I have watched the 2021 film, and a long time ago, also the David Lynch film. So speaking of the 2021 film, I saw today they released a trailer of the trailer, <laughs> the part two, which is dumb. I hate the how trailers have trailers now, but I did see they did have that. And basically it was just, it looked like Paul just putting like the, the thing in the sand and that's all they showed. So anyway, the, the real trailer is supposed to come out tomorrow, tomorrow being May 3rd. Um, so I guess we'll... By the time the episode is out, the real trailer will be out. Yeah. The, the movie might be out at that, at that time, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so yeah, we're all looking forward to uh, part two, I guess, like hopefully we'll be done by then. And uh, yeah, since next episode is actually like the end of the book, I was actually planning on probably watching the, the old David Lynch one. Um, I think I saw, did I see something like Patrick Stewart's in it in the old one? Is 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 Patrick Stewart Gurney or something? Oh. He, he is in the old one. I don't remember what character remember. he is, but yeah, he's, yeah. and I, I, and I, I think, I think he has a full head of hair. Like that's how long ago. That I was also that. thinking if there's any bald characters besides the Baron until I realized how, how old, <laughs> how long ago 2000 was. <laughs> he may have had a full head of hair. Oh man, don't even say Patrick Stewart is a Baron. That would be, be a I know, I know. <laughs> that would be so nasty. <laughs> yeah, I saw some YouTube video about the, like, I don't know, that had Patrick Stewart in Dune. I was like, what? I would have watched this way sooner. But, but... <laughs> I, <laughs> I think out there has been hesitating. There's your, there's your treat. <laughs> yeah. I think now we all need to watch just to, just to confirm whether or not Patrick Stewart has hair. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Pax, nobody Google it. We'll all watch. All right. Cool. All right. Well, I think we'll just start with the, uh, the characters for, for this episode. Um, so we have a couple new ones and a couple returning ones. Uh, we have Akin, so Akin Nefud, um, the guard captain for the Harkonnens. Beast Raban, a brutish and sadistic nephew of the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Gurney Halleck, a loyal friend of Duke Leto, who has turned to smuggling since the Artreides household splintered. And Aaliyah, Paul's sister, a preborn reverend mother. And we will go to Talia for the summary for this part. So, in this part, the Harkonnens have caught wind of the religious fervor spreading on Arrakis. Adrautha makes an attempt on his own uncle's life. The Baron confronts him interrogates him about his sham gladiator act and decides to bargain with him. He decides to let Fedratha live, but humiliates him, kills off his minions in front of him to see if he will cut his losses. The Baron omits that Hawat tipped him off and it's revealed that Thufur Hawat, knowing neither Harkonnen will admit to having been helped, plays both. Paul, now 18 years old and father to a son with Cheney, completes the ultimate Fremen test and rides a giant maker. Throughout the Fremen interactions, there are murmurs about Paul's sister, Aaliyah. She appears as a two-year-old child, fully replete with all the memories of her reverend mother and emotionally bonded to Jessica in a way that occasionally reaches a point of telepathy. Hara, Paul's Ganima, loves and protects the child from the fear and disgust of the Siege. And all three women contemplate whether Paul, a newly minted sand rider, Will challenge Stilgar for leadership. Gurney and Paul reunite in battle with the words, you've no need of a knife with me, Gurney. And Gurney Halleck believes he is hallucinating his dead duke. Paul vocally regrets the loss of a carryall and Gurney fully realizes that this is not his duke, who is more concerned for his men. Chaney and Gurney meet and Gurney watches the Fremen's training combined with Paul's battle tactics into a thing of power. When ambushed by the Sardaukar concealed in Gurney's troop of smugglers, the Fremen suffer light casualties. 
Paul and Stilgar face each other after the confrontation of the Sardaukar and announce that although the Fremen way of succession involves bloodshed, so does the way of meeting offworlders. Long ago, Stilgar saved Jessica and Paul, and Paul refuses deadly combat with him now from his own position of power. Ways change. All right. So I think this is a pretty eventful section of the book here. Um, so maybe we'll just go with initial impressions. And Amin, we, we missed you last week or last episode. So why don't, we, why don't you start? I thought this section was was fine. I could see that it was all building up to whatever happens in the last handful of chapters. Um, I, I guess I guess in the first section of this, it was um, it was interesting that that Hawat was, I don't know, betraying, but not sharing everything with the Baron. And I thought that was um, I thought that was out of character. So I'm curious where that's gonna go. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing that was interesting to me in the in the early part of this reading, and I'll talk about my impressions on the later part too, but is is how how much he underestimates the power of of religion. And I don't you know, given how how big that is in the rest of the book, it just seemed that also seemed surprising and out of character. So maybe I misunderstood that part, but it just seemed like he he just yeah, he just uh, underestimated the freemen and then he I feel like he underestimated the power of religion as well. I was actually surprised how much Gurney or how much uh, how it was like cooperating with him. Like it seemed like he was like actually like like trying to help him, right? Like I mean, I know it's like you know like a, a means to like the private betray him in the end, but like it really seemed like he was like trying to help him, like you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, but but that that's <laughs> I I agree, and and that's why the the fact that he didn't let him know that some Atreides are still alive was surprising because he does seem like he's helping him in every in every other way. Yeah, like he like tells him, you know, because he, he's like trying to like maybe his his ultimate goal is just to like take over like the emperor or something, you know. Um, and so like the, the barons is kind of a means to, to do that, uh, because he probably blames the the emperor, you know, for the Atreides massacre. Right. Um, but yeah, I, to me, like it was, um, yeah, it, it seemed like he was like overly helping more than he should. Right. Like it, to me, like he's like a prisoner of the, of, of the baron. Right. You yeah. see that what Fade Ratha says though, too, he is telling his uncle, like how, what's a dangerous toy. Like they see. I think more in the section than ever before, how powerful Thufir Hawat is. And I think both of them, definitely the Baron, even suspect that he's been playing both of them. And also you kind of see a little bit of um, his inner monologue um, when the Baron is talking to him. And um, you see that he really hates the Baron. He makes, he says that directly. And also yeah. he says <laughs> that he will, uh, you know, his his goal kind of is to see the Baron dead. So it, it it does seem clear to me that he's trying to um, play the Baron, but in a way that the Baron does not come to know, because as we also get come to see, the Baron himself has a lot of um, uh, intuition and uh, ability to almost like, it seems like he's mind reading at times. So that is kind of fascinating. Um, and yeah. Like the same thing, Priya, because we see in this section... Like someone's inner monologue would be like, oh, this old fool won't stop talking. And Baron's like, you probably think I'm an old fool who won't stop talking. But, <laughs> <laughs> and that happens, you know, a couple times in this section, like with Jessica wanting coffee and with the Baron sort of anticipating and seeing around corners. And I think that's why we all unanimously agreed that this section should be called the prophet because it's obviously more than just Paul who has this kind of awareness and perception. I have to say, like the the first two chapters of this reading, like the the one with the Baron and then the one with um with a Howitt, were like my favorite of of all of them. Like the stuff with with I don't know, like I'm not super into the stuff with like Jessica and like and that that part of it and like the Paul stuff is like it's all right. Um, the 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 end chapter I think was 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 good too, but like I think well, <laughs> it's sort of weird to like when I the first the you know the first chapter we saw like it started with like the Baron I think that was like the first words and I was kind of excited about it because like and 
I hate to, I hate to say he's my favorite character, but he's the character I'm most interested in in reading about. Because like you said that last episode, yeah, <laughs> he's just like the most interesting of of all the characters in his storyline. Like you know, like the way he like plays people and like the you know the kind of political machinations. Like it's it's the most interesting to me. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that you mentioned how it like underestimating the Fremen and underestimating, or sorry, not underestimating the Fremen, underestimating religion because we see that happen a couple times in this section um, when it really stood out to me, which I didn't remember from my first read was Paul telling Jessica, the Fremen have a simple practical religion. Nothing about religion is simple, she warned. And in fact, I almost chose for a quote, uh, this Benny Gesserit proverb, which I believe appears in a few of his other books, uh, which says when religion and politics travel on the same cart, the writers believe nothing can stand in their way. Their movement becomes headlong, faster and faster and faster. They put aside all thought of obstacles and forget that a precipice does not show itself to the man in a blind rush until it is too late. Yeah, I I, I missed that quote in my highlights. I was just I was just flipping through seeing if I had noted that and I did not. So it's a strong thanks one. for catching that. Yeah. You should not say, as Paul says, oh, the Fremen is just a simple practical religion. <laughs> Because all through the book, we've seen him push back against people underestimating the Fremen, both in terms of their number, the population, their fighting prowess. And now, like, we see him falling into this trap as well. I, I think that there is a great deal of irony that takes place in these uh, conversations. A bit of, like, it's almost like when characters have a few blind spots in their uh, self-awareness uh, is the way I like to see it. Um, because uh, Jessica says you indoctrinate endlessly <laughs> and it it's true. But at the same time, he also kind of uh, tells her that he learned it from her. And that's also true. And uh, that's the whole uh, Benny Jesuit way is to kind of indoctrinate people into that way of thinking about life. And um, knowledge is literally almost just like passed on from one brain to another, as we saw with the re uh, the Reverend Mother. Um, and also there's another moment where uh, earlier where the Baron, where, where Fedrotha asks the Baron why he doesn't keep a Benny Jesuit uh, woman around. And he says, I don't trust them. Um, and I, I thought the irony there is that like, uh, it, um, Jessica is his, his daughter, right? So granddaughter, <laughs> daughter, daughter, <laughs> daughter. <laughs> so he, he actually, um, fa fathered a Benny Jesuit. So that's kind of strange to me. Yeah, but he and, doesn't trust anyone around him. And like, true. you know, as this section shows rightfully so they'll try and like put needles in your, Slave their thighs, <laughs> slave boy's thigh, because they know where you'll see the slave. Yeah, yeah. right. These little <laughs> details that we get, so oh, unnecessary, man. so grotesque. <laughs> there was such a grotesque, funny little aside with Dan's bestie, the Baron, in this <laughs> section. When I think Fade is maybe teasing, but asking in a plausibly deniable way, like, "Oh, why, uh, why don't you keep a woman around?" And the Baron's like, "You know my ways." <laughs> right you know my ways and then also you knew i would touch him there. You knew. Right. <laughs> yeah let's not linger on why fedrotha knows that exactly and why uh, yeah let's leave some of those things unsaid okay so now that we've established how cruel the baron is and also kind of how disgusting he is um, and the cruelty obviously coming from how it like starts with him being kind of gross and then he decides at the end that all the slave women should die cruel well not only the slave one but he, like he he killed a bunch of other people too like he killed he kills the slave the slave master yeah because he he's bad at chess he garrots <laughs> he requires that the slave master be garroted yeah. twice in this section and he obviously has learned a few things because he demands to see the body because you know we've already seen that be a problem when people get sloppy in their murders and they don't see the bodies people like paul and jessica right yeah yeah and also he has his own guys killed uh because he didn't like how sloppily they dragged out exactly that poor that poor slave boy's body he did not like that so they should also die 
I thought um, that they made him look bad. Like they made him look like a bad dude who just killed people with reckless abandon. And so that's why he killed them because they didn't like do it with dignity. Right. Because that really solves the image problem. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, this is like I, I the re I feel like the reason I enjoyed this chapter um uh is because it it almost felt like a scene straight out of like Game of Thrones when Game of Thrones is at its peak like shock value. So like you know by the end of it you can envision that everyone's being killed and you have this super evil guy who you kind of expected e to be evil, but you don't expect him to just like just slaughter everyone with like reckless abandon and that's kind of what he does and then he really just it, it seems like he's doing it just to get Fade Rotha's attention like hey this yeah. is what I'm capable of and I'm kind of uh flexing my power and authority here he's kind of jealous too right yeah. mm -hmm. oh he definitely is yeah yeah it's more than just attention he's also sore loser he's kind of jealous Right, and that, this is him kind of regaining the upper hand in the situation because the attempt on his life was also performed in sort of like a humiliating kind of way. So, mm. um, yeah, it, it's just like... In flagrante, yeah. he'd be found dead. Yeah. Right, and you, you get... It's kind of like how like Ty Tywin Lannister dies on a toilet. Like that's how he... <laughs> similar to how he <laughs> would allowed died. to talk about succession on this podcast or should I keep a lid on that? Depends... <laughs> depends on how spoilery I guess. yeah probably, <laughs> probably, not, probably not the latest season keep my mouth shut yeah. but yeah i also thought that you know the baron brought up a bunch of things he didn't necessarily need to like so that gladiator you were not a yeah. hero right I, like he just is doing that to humiliate him too i just realized what you were gonna say about succession <laughs> <laughs> i have nothing to say um except for priya when you were talking about the Baron killing off all of these men, I wanted to point out a bit of nuance. It's not actually all of them, you know? It's not everyone with no no um, people to tell the stories, no survivors. In fact, I think it's critical that there are survivors. That's what Hawat and the Baron are talking about, that the people who get through this brutal, brutish regime consider themselves elite and they sort of do some of their own mental programming and say like well you know i've survived being around the baron i must be like the best attendant ever and that's hinted as that's how the emperor gets this fierce loyalty from the sardaukar there was also a real semi-reveal depending on how perceptive you are it was a reveal for me <laughs> all the sardaukar are like recruits from the brutal conditions of seleucus secundus if you can survive the prison planet like you might be worthy to defend the emperor and they think of themselves as the best of the best because probably a lot of their brethren die around them all the time. Yeah. And, and I, I agree. And also Hawat kind of hones in on this, this little detail that you just mentioned here, because he says, I, I think his tone upsets the Baron uh, at some point And he kind of, you know, he kind of, he's kind of like careful there. And he's like, I know you won't waste someone who's actually useful to you. Mm. But yeah, Dan, you saw that too, like the way that Frank Herbert is making this point about human nature. And I think that's a theme he likes to talk about, like the fact that we program ourselves through the, these circumstances. Yeah. I mean, he also said like, yeah, you know, oh, you might have killed like 5,000 Fremen or something, but that just weeds out the the weakest among them, right? <laughs> and like the only the strongest are left who didn't get killed. So like, uh, it's, yeah, it's a constant like theme uh, throughout this this chapter. Right, like you've bred them to escape you. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like, yeah, kind of sort of evolutionary, right? Like in a, in a very like it small is time scale. It's funny yeah. to me, though, that like they sent in his other, like he has this cherished nephew, the Na Baron, who he's like grooming, ooh, some pun intended, to be <laughs> the next, the next probably emperor, like put him on the throne, not just head of the Harkonnens but like has so much ambition for him. And then he's got this other numb nut. He's like, just send him to Arrakis to get as much spice as possible and make all the Fremen hate him. Because then when I put my nephew, my other nephew in, he'll look good. He's just sending this guy in as cannon fodder. I thought I got kind of the impression like when, um, when, uh, 
when Hava was saying that stuff about Raban, like saying like, oh, just abandon him. Don't, you know, don't even do anything. Like, yeah, he, he was pretty surprised about it. Like the Baron was pretty surprised about it. I don't know if like, it's because like he was surprised about the strategy. Like, I don't think he cares about him, right? Like, it's not like he's like, oh, I can't do that to my nephew or his nephew, right? Or his relative. Um, I, I don't know. Like that, that his reaction to, to how it's saying that was, was sort of surprising to me. Because normally he just, you know, to me, like he wouldn't care. Like, oh yeah, cool. I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> to me, it just seemed like he was kind of mulling over like whether this would strategically work or not. Yeah, um, it didn't seem like he actually cares about his nephew. <laughs> no, I don't think he does. Yeah. I, I mean, like maybe it's just like he was surprised that he didn't think about that, you know, that like, he, you know, because he considers himself and he seems to be pretty good at strategy, right? And so like maybe he's actually seeing the uh, the use of how it there. And he's also in that moment uh, thinking like uh, in terms of like strategy, he's not only thinking of um, the advice that Hawat is giving him. He's also thinking like, what is Hawat's end goal? Like what is his play for his own personal schemes? <laughs> so he's fully aware all the while that like Hawat is, he does have like his own self-interests um at play or uh i guess like his uh his goal towards revenge and he seems to consider like every angle that a person could possibly think of um in the scenario so it's interesting to see in these chapters like the characters kind of inner inner dialogue written out um because it's always it's always helpful in a conversation when you're given a little bit of what they're thinking Okay. Um, we want to move on to the next section, which is, I guess, Paul, if we're just going to go chronologically in the, in this section, uh, yeah. talking about his, his trials of, uh, having to tame and ride a sandworm. Um, and you know, uh, I don't, I don't have much to say about this part, except in my mind, I just envisioned this like never ending story kind of thing. <laughs> it was like, it was almost comical that this whole riding worm thing is a thing and I could not take it seriously in the slightest. So. You know, I, I read this part twice. And like one thing that was not clear to me is like, so like Paul gets on the worm, right? And like he puts his hooks into there and he gets on there and he starts riding it. But then like, are the rest of the Fremen on the same worm after that? Or do they have on different worms? Like they're on the it same seems worm. Like they're, yeah, they're just like, they're just chilling on the worm and like talking about like where yes. they're going to go next. <laughs> oh my God. Like, I'm so glad you guys said that because I couldn't take it seriously either. Because first of all, like it seems so hard and so difficult and strategic to like mount, mount a sandworm. And then yeah. suddenly everyone else is like already on it. And like, you well, that's, that's on purpose, though. Like, this is this is child's play for them. It's right. only scary and dangerous to off-worlders. No, but but didn't they say that this was the biggest worm anyone's ever written? Yes. But then Stilgar's like, blah, blah, well, blah, you didn't blah. write it very well, or whatever he said. Oh, yeah. I love the way Stilgar schools and he's like, well, yeah. well, Paul's like on top of the world. Like, oh, I better not be like one of those young, brash men, because I feel like I could turn handstands. Like, I'm top of the world, literally. And this is the biggest sandworm they're gonna write new legends and still goes like that was sloppy and you left <laughs> rum sand over there and you didn't appoint a second in case you died like you screwed it all up i thought right. that was brilliant there's so much shade being thrown like he's even like <laughs> you, we, you know we typically start this when we are 12 and you're six years older than that so yeah. like <laughs> no one really cares to see like you know how well you do this like you don't have to prove anything you just have to like survive this and then he does it and then he's like oh, with yeah, tenderness though didn't do a great job with that yeah <laughs> it's because he's worried about him like no one like the guy who gives him his hooks is like you know these are my own hooks uh, maybe you saw that as shade, like you don't even have your own hooks, but I saw it as, as tenderness. Yeah, I saw it as like, here's like, and like, um, uh, and Stilgar gives like the best, the best rod, right? It's like, this is, this is a really good mm -hmm. one. You'll be able to, you'll be get a you know, good worm with this. And the guy gives him the hooks and it's like, it seems like it's going to be like this big thing. And then like, he gets on it and it's like, oh, I did it. Like I climbed this like whole worm and the other guys are just there. It's like, it, it reminded me of like, if you're riding a bull or something, right? And it's like really bucking all around. And then there's like another guy on there, but like, hey, how's it going? Where are we going to go after this? Where are we going to get Devastating, Dan. You should do yeah. it for this movie. <laughs> it, it, didn't, it didn't strike me as cool as like 
I, I feel like it would probably be one co much cooler if like one dude was writing a sandworm and like being really you can't like forget. it's it's like a commute for them like the fremen sometimes it's like a bus taking the get, train <laughs> sometimes the fremen's ride worms to get from a to b not just for the purpose of riding a worm in fact that's most of the reason yeah it's more yeah it's like a bus okay. <laughs> that's well, why there are multiple people on it yeah <laughs> I don't, I think this is getting lost in translation, but, <laughs> but yeah, anything more about that section of Paul? I mean, when I first read this and again, when I reread it, I, like you guys did not think there was any possibility that Paul would, would fail this ultimate test. Um, no, definitely not. I mean, Jessica seemed pretty worried, but like, uh, yeah, most people uh, seem pretty worried. Um, yeah, but unfortunately I wasn't able to feel the same apprehension as I have in, in other points. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I don't think there was any um, fear in mind about him failing. But I think that I think that like the anticipation of like when he's like summoning the worm is like building up to like this really cool moment. And then like this, the, the imagery of everyone writing it kind of like downplays that. But I also found it interesting that like the bigger concern um uh, when Jessica's conversation with Hara is happening is that uh, not about like Paul surviving the sandworm, but like Paul being pressured to challenge Stilgar at the end of it. So that's what I found interesting. Like that's their bigger concern. What uh, that reminded me of when I was speaking of danger is, and this is a bit of a time jump, so I'll make one comment and then we can return to chronology. But when Paul and Gurney meet, and there's sort of this reveal of, you know, Fremen leaping out from everywhere. And then Paul like sniffs the air and Cheney immediately says like the wind, the wind has changed and all the Fremen start moving. And that's something that Gurney notices. He's like, you know, when this worm came, no one batted an eyelash. Like the thing that the worm, like the worm was pretty much ignored and they have this intense fear of the wind. Cause they know it's, you know, telling them about a storm that's a lot more dangerous than a worm, which, you know, I, this sounds blasphemous, but it's the bus. Like, it's not a thing to be feared if you're a foreman. Right. Yeah. That, that, that was interesting to me too, because I think in that moment it establishes even further that the worms are not really a, a source of fear for them. Like they've conquered the worms in a sense. And um, in a they, sense. they yeah. In, 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 yeah, not, not just in a sense, they really have conquered the worms, but I think it's, it's also saying something that they still seem to have tremendous respect for the worms. Um, they call them makers and uh, they, heard, yeah. yeah. And they, they don't like, it's, it's a thing to be respected as like the force of nature that it is, but it seems more and more apparent when you have moments like this that really they're more afraid of their environment, like the atmosphere and the way that it treats them, like the fact that like water is a scarcity because of the atmosphere, because of the environment. Um, and also the fact that these storms are, um, are a thing that's caused by the environment. Like these factors seem more outside of their control that they have like you know they denied right. us the Hajj, like they took us from paradise that's yeah really perceptive so i guess we can talk a little bit about Aaliyah because we have um scenes with her and you know, what um, is your take on Aaliyah? <laughs> wait who's Aaliyah? <laughs> she's the the daughter of uh oh um, the yeah, creepy little just, girl <laughs> yeah the two year the, 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 the abomination of you know someone who is pre-born uh with all these memories oh yeah i i didn't have an opinion of i mostly just tried skimming over all of that stuff as well like like this whole paul and cheney thing like is very uninteresting to me so i mostly skipped over that you know it's interesting you should say that because i feel like paul and cheney's relationship like the most we see of it is like in the previous section uh, where we saw him talking to her in this like extreme like spice induced state. And then he also starts off in this section of the book in a similar spice induced state where and not even similar. It's like more intense because he kind of can't even locate himself in space and time. Mm -hmm. um, but also 
they they're suddenly talking in this very strange way with each other it's almost poetic it's a little bit flowery it's a little bit cringe <laughs> at times uh maybe that's just my opinion but like I mean there's also a sweetness and a tenderness to it but I feel like it doesn't it doesn't feel earned when there's such a huge time jump because you haven't seen their relationship really evolve and maybe that's just a me thing but like I think that is a thing that time jumps tend to do to us where you have a, a two characters whose relationship is just kind of building up to something and then you kind of lose them and then you jump forward to where they're already a couple they already have a child and you don't know the manner in which their relationship has built itself up and established itself by the time you're there so then suddenly when you have these different speech patterns with them you're like okay but like what what are they really like like what is their relationship like and now they also have a child and you don't in this section you don't really get they to give see us anything as like an audience surrogate for that and I think yes is perfect in that place because I agree yeah Paul does this like hey surprise I've been alive last two years and I've got a little sister and I have a woman and we have a child and Gurney like widens his eyes <laughs> right <laughs> like, yeah Gurney really like, is us <laughs> it's like all right <laughs> I thought that you were dead man and so that's why, because I think Paul even has the nerve to ask him, like, why are you with the smugglers? And he's like, because I thought you were dead. <laughs> just... Yeah, he, he said, like, just like, that's the only, is the only way to revenge, right? Was to use the smugglers to get to Raban. But it also gives Gurney, like, greater ambition because he, it, it says that, like, his only goal has been to, like, trade his way up until he can sacrifice his life to kill Raban, take out yeah. another Harkonnen. So now he gets to accompany the uh, the prophet and the messiah, which I don't know if he even wants to do. Like he obviously has some reservations when he can tell how different Paul is. There's these reservations from living with the smugglers about having gone too native. And obviously Paul is very native right now. Um, with the spice trances and a native woman and blue and blue eyes and taking on Fremen culture and just from no longer being recognizable to him immediately as a, you know as an Atreides because he didn't prioritize the men he kills and lets them die and yeah. uh, mocks people's death in a way that I think we're shown that the Duke Leto did not and we also find out that like and Gurney Halleck also comes to find out that Paul is Muad'Dib when someone calls him Muad'Dib and he's heard all the legends of Muad'Dib and um, later Paul reflects that like, you know, just as presence in a place where killing has happened attaches his name to that killing even though he he himself personally did not take a single life and that's how legends happen mm-hmm. that like because he was there he's that's the one who's responsible. And these are also the types of legends that Halleck has heard. So in his mind, Paul has become even more something that's a far departure from the Paul that he knew because these legends have informed in his mind who Muad'Dib is. And now he finds out Paul is Muad'Dib. So it's really a lot to process for someone who's just reuniting with this with this person who was to him a, a child before and is now a man and a completely different sort of man. But like coming back to Aaliyah, um, it's it's interesting to me that we get so much of Aaliyah in this section, but we don't see Paul's son at all. So given that Aaliyah is two, as they say, uh, there's not much younger that um, Paul's child can be than her. So. So it makes you like it's it's kind of like this this strange a little bit strange dynamic where Paul's own child and his baby sister are like going to be around the same age and um it it makes me wonder like what 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 is the nature of Paul's child like does he have these special abilities does he have Benny Jesuit training as well as Aaliyah does he have um like is he going to be trained in that lifestyle and have the special powers that they do just a tiny note that gurney had to learn that instead of there is zero being zero atreides there's actually four <laughs> surprise right yeah there's so many atreides he hadn't accounted for 
Yeah, I mean that'll be an interesting relationship between the the two of them if we if we see it in this book, which we I don't know. I, also, you get like a chilling reminder that um, that Gurney still believes and is under the false um, the false idea that Jessica is a traitor, and he also has this like revenge fantasy against her. So. It's it's very strange because now with the Duke dead, there's no one else who knew about like there's no one else in whose mind the idea was planted that Jessica was a traitor, except for I think Hawat was also told the yeah. same story. Yeah, I think Hawat even says that in this. this yeah. Chapter. Yeah. Which is kind of weird because like, isn't he, shouldn't he be a mentat and know better? But yeah, um, the Baron, he, Hawat is congratulating himself like. The Baron confessed he put Jessica up to it, just yeah. <laughs> accepted. But I think it again shows the just reliance that this society has on people as thinking machines. Because, you know, even when Hawat is showing the Baron, like, okay, so the, the Beast Raban like spent 30,000 people to kill 15,000 people look at the numbers, think about the numbers. And he's like, that's your job. You're a mentat. Like, I'm not going to think about these numbers. Tell me what they mean. And if how it's getting bad information in, maybe all he can do is make bad conclusions. I also generally tend to think that like, I've been of the opinion since this book began that how is not a really good mentat. That might just be me. But... Oh, shots fired. <laughs> it doesn't seem that good at his job to me. I mean, the Baron certainly misses Peter. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't, know, I don't know why, though. R.I.P. Like, yeah, what, 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 I mean, maybe Peter was either manipulated or something. <laughs> yeah, he just got hit with poison, right? <laughs> so, any, any idiot can do that. <laughs> and he should have known about it, right? He was a mentor. He right, <laughs> he should have known for himself and his master, but he didn't. Yeah. I think Howard does a great job, but I love the difference of opinions on rehydrate. <laughs> I guess we 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 kind of jumped around a little bit. Um, we have we have the whole chapter with the relationship with uh, Jessica, Leah, and uh, was it Hannah, right? Or is it Hara? Yeah, Hara, Hara. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's a pretty interesting relationship between the the three of them, and um, it's also weird. Like they're trying to like keep it secret, like that she has like all these powers, like that that Aaliyah like has all this like knowledge, but it's. I don't know. It seemed like kind of obvious. <laughs> to, to, like it's, it seems like she's like, like pretty mature for like a two-year-old, right? She's like going around I mean, like talking. Suspicious, you know. Yeah. Like it's. Well, they say like they want to exercise the demon out of her or something, right? Yeah, yeah. This is gonna be pretty creepy to film, is all I was thinking. <laughs> like, what a two-year-old twitching one muscle behind their eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like a two-year-old just like talking in like coherent. Oh, sentences. I hate when they do that. Ooh. All the while having a baby, like a baby lisp. Yeah, they do that they... in horror movies. Oh, yeah, it's no, like I understand the Fremen. 101. The Fremen are right. Kill it with fire. That sounds <laughs> terrifying. Right. So, like, if you try to envision like a ch- a little tiny little cherub baby, that's disgusting. With like. <laughs> Like With laughing like, at a double entendre, which is yeah. what it said it happens here. That is really creepy. Well, yeah, or, so, or it's just going to be really bad and obvious CG. <laughs> That's also true. That's which might possible. Be worth. I mean, you've seen they called Dune. <laughs> what am I saying? They called Dune unfilmable because <laughs> because, because of, of Aaliyah. Because Not it's Leo. hard to encapsulate, you know, several things. Yeah, I mean, maybe they just age her up, right? And like not have her be two, but have her be six or something. And like the whole point of it being creepy is because she's two. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's I I feel like once you get kids from like I think like four and above, they start being like pretty sassy anyway, and they start like saying things that you wouldn't expect them to say. So it doesn't strike you as that odd, but like the two year olds are innocent, Priya saying, and then yeah. three and up are not man. innocent. We went through the terrible twos and. It is still fresh in my mind, but all these years later. But um, but like at two, they're they're not really making a lot of sense, is what mm. I remember. Um Yeah. M- they're much not like pairing puns. pairing babies to like yeah, other babies that are born like 50 years ago, whatever it was, right? Saying like, oh, this baby right. reminds me of this other baby. But uh, it's funny because it's totally like a kid thing, like, oh, why did you say that? Because it was true. I'm like, right. well, it was wildly inappropriate. <laughs> like <laughs> 
Aaliyah's, uh, we'll see what happens to her. I mean, it's seen that in several of Paul's visions, she's like alive and walking around. So there's definitely futures where they don't like murder her. Um, also, does it strike you as a bit odd that Jessica just kind of like sends her to like, like sit in on conversations and just like report back to her like go go this sit in like, on that conversation like a spider in this one like sitting yeah. at the center of her web like flicking all these information neurons towards her like oh coffee over here got my spy over here hara is over here and like you know even hara having this discussion with stilgar's wife like they have their own agreement about what will happen to them and jessica's privy to that and I think that was the sort of the point of Hara's last comment when instead of going deeper into talking about Aaliyah, she's like, you have too many people stomping through here. Your rugs are all dusty. And it's true. Like Jessica's being fed information from like everyone coming to her. I also kind of uh, found myself intrigued at this point by Hara's character because you kind of see her taking this child on mm. as like almost her own and she seems to have a genuine care for the child's well-being and um it 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 doesn't bother her that the child is weird it bothers her that other people are finding the kid weird and they're all saying like oh you need to perform an exorcism on this child and i think she genuinely worries about Aaliyah's safety because mm. the other people the townspeople they are they find the child weird and don't want her around. So our redemption arc. Right. Like it's... that's what she admired in Jameis too. She tells Paul, like, you know, he never, like he treated both of my kids like they were his own. And so right. she has those qualities in herself too. That's a good callback. Yeah. So you really get see a little bit more of her character develop and how she's allied herself. Like genuinely, it seems with Jessica and Aaliyah. Um, and this whole section is full of callbacks. Like yeah. <laughs> I sort of phrased it a little bit in the summary, but there's this recognition that Stilgar saved Paul and Jessica. And now Paul and Jessica have the ability to save Stilgar and not have this power confrontation. And, you know, we see the Duke's tooth be, you know, the downfall of, you know, Peter and almost the Baron. And then Paul's educating, you know, Gurney's men saying like, watch out for the Sardaukar because, like their toenails, fake toenails, their teeth, fake teeth, their hair, like you can use it to choke someone out. So watch out for the anatomy. These lessons that, you know, weren't learned earlier are being taught again. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, that um, Paul uh, kind of chose differently in that moment than to challenge Stilgar. And I, it, seemed, it almost seemed to me like Stilgar had been on edge all along up to that point because mm -hmm. he was expecting to be challenged and then Paul chooses differently. And I thought it was a really endearing moment where he said like, you... Oh, I read that so differently. Really? Um, that, Go on, I, I think I read it as like there there are moments where Stilgar says certain things where like I think Paul wonders like why did he choose to say it like that and the only sense that I got after learning from the other chapter that like th there's pressure upon Paul to challenge Stilgar is that Stilgar was probably aware of that and that, that's how I read it um but uh as far as Paul choosing differently goes I think that it's really endearing for him to bring back that moment of how he first met Stilgar and how he chose to do things differently from what is custom. And I think that that's what Paul's whole thing is about, that he sees he sees the future, but he still wants to do things in a way that could prevent that future. And um, he is going to choose to do things differently out of a sense that he might be able to prevent worse things from happening in the future but so he sacrifices in order to do that sure he saves Stilgar by not challenging him but what does he have to do instead he has to challenge the entire Fremen way of being that's the only way to save his friend and that's what he chooses he challenges something much deeper to Stilgar than his life he says in this section I'm naive I would never be taken alive Stilgar has like made some kind of peace with his own death but he follows the fremen way and paul is changing the fremen way so i found it unsettling as well as endearing 
I think there's definitely like an unsettling quality about it for sure, because um, people don't take well to change, but that's not to say that certain customs should not change. Um, I mean, who's to decide which custom should change? That's a fair argument. But I think that customs that put, I guess, that value human life are like, if you break a custom in favor of saving human life i think that 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 is a positive in the end and i think that that makes for a different type of leader i like your interpretation talia because um i should probably go back and read it but i i think it would probably i don't know i didn't think i didn't have that perspective on this so i probably missed a lot or misunderstood a lot well, the hosts have varying levels of knowledge with this book. <laughs> and I also deliberately always read like hours before when yeah. we record. So I like have it because things just fall out of my brain otherwise. And I cannot recall like exact details. So um, yeah, that's probably why these things are a little bit more fresh in my mind. Well, it's worth a reread as we barrel towards the finale. That's all I can say. Any predictions? Anyone want to go on the record, except for Amin, who's not allowed to make predictions, uh, with predictions for what the end will hold? We've already gone past where the 2021 movie uh, left off. So Priya and Dan, uh, stage is yours. Hasn't been a lot of like big twists or anything that I that I've seen. Like it doesn't seem very like twisty. Like it's hmm. I mean, I would guess that like Theodroth is going to come to Arrakis. And then Paul is going to fight him or something like that, right? Uh, maybe the time jump again or maybe something like that. It, it, it seems like that they're they're setting up that confrontation um, for, for those two to have some kind of confrontation, right? I, I do have to say, like, I, I really appreciate how you broke up this book, Dan, without any knowledge of... Um... <laughs> Yeah, of like what's to come and what happens when because I felt like it made a lot of sense to stop in the places where we've stopped so far um I really I I get the sense that there will be a time jump at some point in the last section we're going to read because it just I get that sense um I don't love time jumps but they can sometimes be effective uh depending on the story that you're trying to tell so I wouldn't hate it if it's done well yeah i i feel like there's definitely going to be some sort of a showdown with the baron um especially now that we kind of uh did not really mention this but i believe paul said he wants the sardaukar the two that they captured he wants them to escape right and if they escape that means word gets out that paul atreides is alive meaning the duke of House Atreides is alive. Um, so what will be the consequences of that? Word would inevitably reach the Baron. So there will be conflict on that front, I would imagine. Well, I mean, like the, I mean, maybe the thing that, that, um, that Howitt said about like the Fremen, like, like, um, and, and when, when, when Howitt's talking to the Baron earlier, he's saying like, oh, there's actually like, 10 million Fremen <laughs> and uh and the whole reason that that the um that the emperor backed the Harkonnens in the first place was because he was worried about the Atreides uh soldiers right um he, he was worried that like they were becoming too good like they were like equal or better than than the, the Sardaukar uh and so like if the emperor then learns that there's like 10 million Fremen who are like way better <laughs> like it's like it was like yeah four, two to four, one in the well, two or yeah two or more to one like deaths right listen like four to one or something uh if he learns that like oh there's actually like 10 million like fighters that are way better than the sardaukar like that's probably gonna you know cause like a big response to you i think something in this section that um becomes kind of important is one of the chapters begins with um a little insight into the emperor um, and, uh, we're talking, uh, we, we, we learn a little bit about how the emperor, um, was afraid of, um, the, the, the men who were being trained by, uh, the Atreides house and, uh, fears over power and po the, the shift in power. 
Um, you, we get this little excerpt where Princess Irulan describes her father as being kind of a solitary sort of person. And his only friend was the Count Fenring, whom we met in the in an earlier section um, and whom we were talking about in our previous episode, um, which is interesting because uh, we don't see Count Fenring anymore in this chapter, but it makes me feel like Count Fenring will definitely be back. Um, and he and his wife had a whole plan to do with Fade Rotha. So I'm sure we'll see some of that come to fruition in the in the future um, chapters. And uh, the nature of his relationship with the emperor uh, became very interesting to me in that moment because it makes him almost more of a character worth paying attention to in my mind based off of that excerpt, knowing how close he was to the emperor. To me, it seems like there's like almost too much stuff to wrap up in like such a short, I mean, not short, but like there's not that much left in the book, right? Uh, we were just looking at our percentages and like we're like 78%. So that there's like, yeah, like only like 20% or so of, of the book left to go. So it seems like there's a lot to wrap up. I mean, I don't know if this, was this book intended to be a series from, from the start or was it, um, was it meant to be like a one book and then it was popular and then uh, he wrote more or is that a spoiler? <laughs> I think you'd have to ask Frank Herbert about that to get the true and honest answer. Um, yeah. If I'm... this leaves on like a weird sort of cliffhanger, I'm going to be kind of upset because I we'll have like to read I, book two. <laughs> I invested too much. Yeah. And too many months of like prolonging this. It just ends like lost guys. Don't worry about it. Oh um, no. <laughs> okay. Well, we had, we can have a whole podcast talking about lost cause I'll defend it, but lost kind of <laughs> lost me like a few like episodes in, but I've, I've never, I've never seen it. So I can get us fantastic guest stars. If we, if we want to do a lost podcast, I can get us guest stars with strong opinions. <laughs> I have very strong opinions about lost, but good because yeah. <laughs> i don't have I any have... strong opinions about lost or game of thrones when you guys go off on that oh man i just wait for us to come back i mean we could probably do a whole season on like the final season of game of thrones and how expectations were not met so <laughs> we would be the first to do it too on the internet no one's no one's done that before no one's ever talked about how much they hated the final season no yeah. one it's okay weird. okay we yeah. have <laughs> We have a finale to get to. We are <laughs> rushing towards it, like politics and religion rushing together in the same cart. We have yes. information from the Princess Irulan, who we have not seen. We've heard from Count Fenring, and we finally met him, and then we hear about him again. So he's sort of sandwiched in our awareness. And we have a whole bunch of visions, which may or may not come true. But there's some sort of climax waiting for us in the finale. I really like that sandwiched in our awareness. I feel like a lot of the characters themselves must be feeling that things are kind of sandwiched in their awareness. Like Paul, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> I do make words together for a living. So thank you for appreciating them, Priya. <laughs> well done. Applause. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes and reading lists. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at festival.com, on Twitter at rehydratepod, or on Mastodon at rehydrate at mas.to. Uh, please join us next episode for the season finale, season seven, episode nine, covering book three, The Prophet, chapters seven to 12 of Dune by Frank Herbert.